If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guest. In the newsroom, Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, jamming day. It's, you know, it's, uh, this might, uh, this, you know, there's always going to be something to spoil things. The House of Commons is back today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, the good news is, uh, the boss didn't show up. So first day back to work, the boss isn't showing up. He's got, um, he's got an appointment. Um, which is kind of a drag because then you got to listen to all the rest of them <laughs> as they gear up to fight for the leadership of the party. But, uh, anyway, so, uh, the House of Commons is back today. And by the way, Ipsos, we're going to talk about this later. Ipsos, uh, has done a poll on what you think as Canadians should be the priorities for the politicians as they head back to the House of Commons today. They're all up screaming and yelling at each other right now, by the way. Um, and the priorities for Canadians for this session, affordability, high cost of living, increases, groceries, uh, inflation coming in at number two, along with interest rates, number three, housing, number four, immigration, immigration. Not health care, not climate change, immigration, because it has become an issue, because obviously there's been a cap put in place on international students because of a housing crisis. So don't tell us this is not another self-inflicted wound that we have to get through. And it's not like Canadians don't love immigration. My mother was an immigrant. I'm first generation Canadian. That's how the country was built. It's bringing in so many so quickly when there's already a housing and a health care crisis, the boss doesn't seem to care. Uh, also, uh, Justin Trudeau wants to re- listen for this. It's coming. They're going to rename the carbon tax because you don't understand it because you don't understand it because, well, initially it's a carbon tax. We're taxing carbon. So we're taxing it. Ah, we're hitting it over the head with a sledgehammer. We're taxing it. Um, but really, all we're get, who's getting taxed is is uh, the citizen because the parliamentary budget officer, who else, uh, has said that this really serves no purpose for bringing down greenhouse gases. So uh, people's opinion are changing on what the solutions are, not necessarily what the problem is. Uh, in changing the name of the carbon tax, get ready. There's nothing better than a new coat of paint to make you think everything's different now. Wow, this is new. It's shiny. Uh, yeah, it's that's what they're talking about. And also, Jugmeet Singh, oh, they're all rambunctious today. Uh, he's up complaining uh, and taking sl- uh, slams at Justin Trudeau, left, right, and center. Um, but he is the only ray of hope that can bring this uh, government to an early election and put us out of our misery uh, without going for another year and a half walking the plank. But he won't do that because only his numbers are lower than the Liberals. Because the NDP and the Liberals are still the same party. For now. Until, of course, he calls them out. Which I'm not sure is going to happen. And speaking of the NDP, they're not doing too well in British Columbia. And they're announcing that they're stopping all new international student applications to that province for two years to eliminate exploitive practices. Once again, policy not uh, thought through. Who's driving the bus? So uh, the NDP in British Columbia have announcing they're suspending for two years uh, all new international applications at new institutions. So there you go. Uh, foreign interference, that inquiry begins today. We'll talk about Phil, uh, to Phil Gursky about that coming up a little later on, just to sample what we got on the way. House of Commons back in session uh, after the holiday, and um, they're just going at it like 90. Uh, it's they're wing, 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 back. You can see the buns flying across the House of Commons. Uh, but the boss didn't show up. 
He's, he's missed. Imagine that if you come back from your Christmas holidays, and you don't show up for the first day. Uh, just saying. All right. Uh, inquiry into election interference starts today. I have a feeling I know most of the answers to the questions I'm going to ask our next guest who's been talking about it for a long time now. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CISIS, former CISIS analyst with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. I'm wondering if the Prime Minister's plane is stuck in Jamaica or something. Is that why he wasn't in the House of Commons? I don't know. we got to get one of those tracking things and follow and see where the next plane's coming to pick him up. Who knows? You never know. Uh, here we go. Is this worth picking this festering scab off again here, Phil? Uh, I've been watching you on various media and such, and, um, um, you know, you've said your thoughts before. It's less about intelligence and just getting it, I guess, to... Uh, the right people, but what are your thoughts? Do you have confidence that this will have some teeth? Uh, I'm thinking of festering scabs, God. It's all like all my mind right now. So thanks for the image. Um, no, I mean, you know, I guess that you, you know the answers as well as I do. I've been pretty consistent that this really isn't worth our money. I mean, it's worth it in the sense that the public may get a better bit of an inside view as to what the security services knew, what they told the government. And things like that. I mean, within reason, because of course, thesis isn't going to betray it, its secrets kind of thing. But this is really an issue that should have been resolved years ago, and not just by this government, by previous governments, because the security services have been warning for the better part of 15, 20 years that China was, you know, China and more recently other nations have been doing this. So, no, we don't need a commission to tell us that the intelligence was there and was missed. That, that's a foregone conclusion. And what I'm hearing from you over the course of the day or so, the last 24, 48 hours, is the information's there. The problem is it's not getting to the right people. Is that accurate? I think so. And, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of tricky with intelligence because, first of all, the person on the receiving end has to have a, a both a need to know, so they have to be in on it, and they have to have the requisite security clearance. And this is something, you know, you put in the post and it shows up two weeks later. So there could be maybe some improvement to distribution and briefing of officials, but the security services are pretty good at that. The problem is, is that I think with very busy people like prime ministers and ministers, the people below them just don't seem to be bothered to pass the intelligence up the line, uh, you know, into their busy inboxes. So we have to do a, a bit of an education, I think, or actually a lot of education at a, at a middle level within the Canadian government to get them to understand what intelligence is and why, you know, why it should be used to make better decisions. All right. So uh, to get a little different approach on this, because, again, we've we've been over this a million times, Phil, and, and, and people like you have said the same thing for years. You brought up education. The first thing we have to do, if you had a wish list and you had an audience uh, with all of these people and they were seriously going to take your words of advice, what are three or four or five whatever top things that you would do in order to try to change this. The first one, and, and you know, you, you mentioned, uh, mentioned education, which would be a good place to start, obviously, telling people what a risk is, that sort of thing. Can you continue on with that? Sure. So this is if Phil Gersky ruled the world, which is a very scary scenario, by the way. We don't want to go down that pathway. <laughs> um, I would certainly, yeah, so aside from just telling them what intelligence is, I, I, I would also let them know on why it's important to have it part of the decision-making process. And again, I'm under no illusion that the only thing that goes into the mix in terms of policymaking. I would also have them uh, understand the seriousness of, of the nature of this thing and, you know, to, 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 to share with what our allies have been saying as well. And our allies have been telling the same story for years as well. I would also let them talk to their allies about how the allies use intelligence and how that helps them make better decisions. So there's a whole bunch of things that can be done. And it's, the worst part for me, Scott, is that, and you, know, you and I have talked about this, you know, we're part of the Five Eyes community, the Anglo-centric intelligence sharing community. This information has been available. We're a solid club. We're all on the same side. We all see China as a threat. And it's kind of, we're, we're the weak, weak link in this regard, and, yeah. and that's not good enough. So, you know what? Pull your socks up, listen to your intelligence services, listen to your allies, and, uh, you know, just pay attention to what's happening out there. There are threats out there that need to be addressed. Uh, this started as first uh, election interference uh, with the Chinese Communist Party. It's now expanded its mandate. Um, do you think, obviously, you, you question these sorts of inquiries, but it may answer some more questions uh, for the general public. Do you think that's the case, or will this be another uh, David Johnston fiasco where everybody just shakes their head? I sincerely hope not. What, I, what do I worry about as well is that it becomes too big for its britches. So I would have much, yeah. I mean, as much as I don't like inquiries, we should have stuck to China. Because if you throw India in the mix, you throw Iran, you throw Russia, you throw God knows what, 
it begins to people get you know it get, people get muddled and there's you know there's there's too many notes out there and there's too many things to think about uh, and I, I think that you know the Chinese one is the one that's the most serious because we know they tried to to affect our elections in 2019 2021 which the government inexplicably says we're not affected I have no idea how you made that conclusion so I think this thing has already grown out of control and if it does that then like you said it becomes a David Johnson report where everyone just shakes their head and says why do we just waste taxpayers money on that. Uh, the government, it appears, uh, especially with a new session starting today, it, it seems to be changing its communication strategy, seems to be pivoting on a lot of issues, whether it's housing, what have you. Do you think they're capable of pivoting on this and actually making this count? I hope so. I will certainly give the government credit. In recent months, it's done a much better job at intelligence. We looked at the you know the allegations that India was behind the yeah. assassination of a, a dissident, although I still don't think the Prime Minister should have shared secret intelligence no. openly. But it seems now they're finally paying attention. So that's a, a minor silver lining in this cloud, Scott. But I need a lot more evidence to show that they're taking this thing seriously. So, yeah, I'll give them the, you know a small victory for this one. But I want to see a lot more happen before I will grant them, you know, a graduation from the School of Intelligence. Bill Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. Uh, foreign interference inquiry begins today. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Hopefully we'll give you a few days break before we phone you again. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. Bye-bye. We were uh, chatting earlier on about how Parliament has returned, and um, uh, they're scrapping already, going back and forth. Prime Minister's not there, though. Um, he's got an appointment, or uh, he's off to Toronto to speak or something. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, you'd think at least for the first day back to class, he'd be there. You know, I mean, uh, so your Christmas vacation is coming to an end and you don't go back on the Monday or the Tuesday or the Wednesday or whatever day that is. Do you think that looks good? Just saying. All right. uh, Feel free. Love to hear from you. Uh, As Parliament does return, Ipsos has done some polling on what is the priority of Canadians, what they want to hear our politicians talking about when this session gets going, as it is now. Daryl Berker with the CEO of Ipsos. And with us now, Daryl, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So first of all, Daryl, uh, before we get to the actual list, this different from, say, last year or two years ago or three years ago or four years ago, are, are our priorities changing? Dramatically. Uh, maybe not over the last year so much, although we've seen one issue come up that wasn't an issue last year. But uh, prior to this, we were pretty focused, <coughs> pardon me, on the pandemic. And uh, now uh, the the pandemic has become economic and we're really focused on things that have to do with the cost of living, particularly things that have to do with the the day-to-day expenses that we all have to, uh, we all have to deal with, with a particular um, focus on housing. So we're really concerned about that. We want to see solutions out of our governments. And at the moment, people aren't particularly satisfied with what they're hearing. Are Canadians more aware of this stuff now because they are feeling the pinch? That's exactly it. So, you know, the number one issue is cost of living. Number two issue is inflation and and interest rates. So now we have people moving into the stage where they're actually uh, getting their mortgage renewals or they're getting their rent renewals or whatever, and they're really starting to notice the effect in their in their in their month to month expenses. So yeah, it's personal and it's on your kitchen table. It's not something that they're watching in the business pages of the press. This is something that they're 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 feeling every day. Uh, so uh, cost effective issues, uh, inflation, interest rates, housing, and then uh, I'm sure this was the issue you were uh, alluding to earlier. Immigration is a concern. Yeah, and we normally don't see immigration in the top no. 10 issues, interestingly enough. It tends to be one that's way down the list. But what's happened is immigration has now been linked by people to cost of living, and particularly when it comes to the affordability of houses. So they hear about the number of immigrants that are coming into the country. They see that their rent payments are going up. They see that their mortgages are, uh, that houses are scarcer and harder to find. And they've got to look for an explanation as to why this is the case. And an increasing number of Canadians are turning towards immigration. And now the government has done a lot of, uh, uh, um, I would say, um, made a lot of positive announcements. They've seen increasing immigration as a really good thing. And they've been, and they've been really out there um, uh, talking a lot about this until actually fairly recently. But the, what Canadians have, have heard is 
we've got this whole group of people in, in, the, in the country that are coming into the country that are putting real pressure on our cost of living, and we don't like it. Uh, and it's not like Canadians uh, don't believe in immigration or even climate change. It's just perhaps not the way the current government is handling that, those issues. Yeah, it's how it's managed. The last time we saw immigration come up on the most important issues list was when we were going through the Roxham Road uh, crisis, mm. when people were coming over the border as uh, you know, uh, people who were not going through the regular system in uh, in Quebec. And that's when we saw it go up. And, and why, why did it go up? Well, because people felt the system wasn't being well managed. And, and the condition that Canadians have on allowing a substantial level of immigration, which we do have in this country, is that it's managed well. And their feeling at the moment is that it's not being managed well, particularly when it comes to the effects that it has on, say, for example, housing prices. Where does climate change fit in this current list of priorities? Very far down the list. Does that surprise you? No. Uh, and we've been seeing this globally. I mean, uh, climate change, the things that people agree on are it's important, first of all. Secondly, that something needs to be done about it. And then the only time that it actually has a resonance with the public is when they feel they have to pay for it. So to the extent that climate change is on the minds of the public right now, it's probably uh, – particularly for the middle class, it's probably more related to the cost of paying the carbon tax than it is <coughs> to the uh, doing things that are going to benefit the environment. People are in a very short-term frame of mind at the moment. And as a result, they're not thinking about the effects of what's going to be happening 20 years from now. It's not that they don't care about it. It's not that yeah. they don't think it's important. It's just that there are things that are urgent that is pushing that off the lists. And I think this is a very interesting um, uh, uh, intersection for this discussion in the sense that whenever we've talked about this before, it's either you're a denier or you're all in. And this is not about that at all. As you mentioned, I think Canadians are very concerned. What they're, uh, what they're also concerned about is, is how it's being done and how it's being managed. And I think with at least what we're seeing here, maybe it drives that point point home it's not a case of uh whether you're in denial or not it's it, it's it's the solution and how to go about getting there yeah and this is what we're seeing you know particularly in places like europe right now where we're seeing a, a pretty strong reaction to government policies that are, are are put out there in order to benefit the climate and people feel that they're being asked to pay a disproportionate amount in order to uh to to satisfy that climate agenda that's the issue it's not that they don't think that the climate isn't important. Yeah. It's just like right now with all the rest of this stuff going on, all of these urgent things that, that you know, are coming in on my email every day or for the mail slot in the front of my apartment or house that say, you know, past due, that's my priority. And if you're going to be adding a cost to that, I just don't really have space for that right now. And this is the problem, I think, you know, with a lot of the client climate activism these days. I mean, so, for example, you know, we had people throwing soup or whatever it was at the Mona Lisa in Paris. Yeah. It's like, I need to aware, you know, raise awareness of climate change. No, you know, everybody understands that. What you need yeah. to have is a solution that people can afford, you know, or they, they, yeah. they can see that they're, they're going to actually make a difference to the climate as a result of what you're asking them to do. You're missing the point, folks. It's time to move into that because that's where the public is in terms of what it cares about. So the reason the government, and we even saw a story today in which they're saying they need to rebrand this idea. Yeah. Tax, well, it's not a branding problem. The problem is no. you're working in an environment in which people do not feel they have the disposable cash to be able to accommodate that part of the agenda. At the moment. Are you surprised they're talking about rebranding the carbon tax, renaming it? Uh uh, well, you, know, uh, you see this all the time in government. They seem to think that when they, that you know, their, their issues are branding when re they're really substance and context. Yeah. It's, it's, as I said before, this is a really easy issue to understand. It's got nothing to do with branding. It's got everything to do with the priorities that people have in their lives at the moment. And this is not a high-ranking priority. Doesn't mean it can't be. Back in 2019, when we had that election, it was the most important issue. When we went out and talked to voters, now it's ranking, you know, eight to 10 on the list. Uh, what about another big issue, especially between the liberals and the NDP, is the federal dental insurance plan and universal pharmacare. Uh, they're still on the list. Yeah, there's there's definitely on the list. And, and again, this is, you know, relieving people of the costs of some of these things. Yeah. They would uh, uh, they very much like that. But at the end of it, 
It's how is this going to change my life? So the next time I go to the dentist, is my, is my bill not going to be there? Yeah. So uh, until I experience it, it's just, it's just a promise. Daryl Bricker with us, CEO of Ipsos Polling. What you want to see our politicians dealing with as they head back to the House of Commons. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott. All right. We certainly heard uh, last week that uh, uh, Service Ontario, they were going to be closing some down and, and moving them into Staples locations. And uh, and when I was listening to this, I, it was like, this is terrible. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. And, you know, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, the post office is in the corner store in the strip mall near where I live. Like, what is this any different from that? Or, um, um, you know, I, I just didn't see what the issues were. So let's see if we can find some. Bruce Winter, retail retail analyst and author, a retail before, during, and after COVID-19, uh, the author of. And Bruce is here now. Bruce, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. So, Bruce, let's start with why. Why would we be moving Service Ontario locations into some staples? Yeah, I think according to the government, um, the reason they're doing it is probably a couplefold. One is they can save money. Yeah. I think they said nine hundred grand over three years. Um, and the other thing is they're offering more convenience to users of the service because Staples is open later than say these uh, other private service centers. That's what that's my understanding, anyways. So, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's an okay thing. I don't think it's that bad. I mean, I think to your point earlier, you know, we already have a lot of post offices and shoppers, drug marts and things like that. And, um, you know, that seems to work well. Um, I think it's, it's, it's good. Um, it'll be great for Staples because mm-hmm. Staples is going to get traffic into their stores, um, you know, and that's something they probably have been lacking a little bit. Um, over time, you know, um, so this would be good for them. I think the debate comes around what is the role of privatizing government services? That's really the big debate. Mm. And there was some accusations a while ago, and I, I don't have all the details of the story in front of me about how issues and involved with crime. Do you think that increases in a situation like this in any way? I don't think so. I don't think uh, it's going to really make a big impact on the crime side. Um, I, I think that, you know, what uh, I think the opposition was saying that, you know, the Ford government sort of favors big business and, and things like that. That's where more of the debate, I think, is coming from right now from the opposition um, is sort of, you know, because during the pandemic, a lot of folks thought that the big box stores got to stay open when the small ones didn't. So I think that's right. what the opposition is using as a bit of a uh, an argument here. So how does this work with something like this? Who pays who for what? How does it work? Yeah, it looks like it's an interesting arrangement. I guess um, what happens is that the taxpayers, the government, gives a one-time payment. I believe it's $10 million for capital costs to kind of create these stores within stores. Right, yeah. And the government also pays labor costs and some type of lease uh, lease rate. And, you know, Staples kind of picks up the rest in terms of giving them a reduced uh, cost for a footprint in their store. Um, and also, you know, is open later and things. So it sounds like it's sort of a trade-off between the two parties. And I guess what the government's saying is that because, you know, they're sort of subleasing a sp- smaller spot within an existing store, that they mm-hmm. can save lease payments over a three-year period. Uh, is there any disadvantage for um, the customer here? Yeah, well, I mean, one could argue there could be a disadvantage if, if you live in a certain market and it's less convenient for you, right? right? You know, the assumption is that the staple stores are right in the center of town and everyone's close to them and it's easy to park and easy to get to. That's the assumption, right? The other assumption is that the service Ontario location offered the same convenience. So if you're in a market where it's becoming less convenient, then that's going to be an issue. Otherwise, you know, I don't, I don't see a big problem with it. Do you see more services or, or more of this situation happening similar to a post office? I really office? do. I really do over time. I, I think that, you know, as governments sort of wrestle with massive amounts of debt and pressure on spending, that they're going to farm out more activities to private companies and sort of have a public-private partnership. I think that's going to be something you'll see more of. And this is a contract for a period of time. Would that be accurate? 
Yeah, my understanding is it's a test. There's like six stores doing a test, and then there's three more on the books. No. But I think they'll have to see how it works out and then decide, you know, just how much they want to uh, ramp this out. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During, and After COVID-19 Staples, uh, going to be welcoming Service Ontario into their locations, much like we see with the post offices uh, now in certain uh, locations as well, uh, and hopefully to save some costs and make it a bit more convenient. Bruce Winder, thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thanks very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that uh, uh, the Justin Trudeau liberals are doing everything they can to try to paint uh, a, a similarity between Donald Trump and Pierre Polyev. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's if you vote in PP, you're going to get DT. That's pretty much uh, what they're saying. However, new polling from Abacus Data shows respondents think Pierre Polyev would do a better job of handling Donald Trump than Justin Trudeau would on a second go-round. Let's bring in Eddie Shepard, Vice President, Insights at Abacus Data, and here now. Eddie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. You as well. Thank you. So, Eddie, obviously we've seen uh, the Liberals uh, quite a bit using Donald Trump and comparing him to Pierre Polyev. Is this working? Is this a good strategy, considering what your polling has suggested? Yeah, right now I think the Liberals, they they think that tying Polyev to Trump will be an effective positioning, and, and more so to hurt Polyev's image and reputation among voters by tying to Trump. And And right now, as you said, you know, m- most Canadians do think that Polyev will do a better job of handling Trump if he is elected the next president of the United States uh, than Trudeau. So it's kind of going both ways in which people think that Polyev will do better, but they also do see similarities between Polyev and Trump that are concerning for some. So where does this leave uh, a campaign moving forward? How do you break all of this down? As of right now, what we're really seeing is that... Uh, when Canadians do view Polyev and Trump as being more similar, they're actually less likely to vote conservative. So we are seeing some initial signs that it may have an actual negative impact on the conservatives moving forward if the liberals do successfully tie uh, Polyev to uh, to Trump. At the same time, right now, you know, we're seeing it, it may be a moot point as as people really strongly dislike Trudeau right now. They think the country's headed in the wrong direction. They really desire change. So it could be a really challenge there. Uh, do you think this uh, sort of data would make uh, the Liberals change their campaign strategy moving forward? Maybe we've got to re-examine this. I think they'll need to really examine it in the, in the coming months as the U.S. election really keeps up, uh, especially moving forward here. But right now, I do think that we're going to continue to track this, but it, it is showing some signs that it may be effective as long as they're able to tie the comparisons and similarities between Trump uh, and Polyev. But at the same time, Trudeau really needs to help his own image because right now he's, you know, Canadians don't trust him, they dislike him, and they really want change in government. So no matter how much they view Polyev as being similar to Trump, the, the huge challenge to overcome is the fact that Canadians truly desire and want change right now, which will be a, a massive hurdle. What I found interesting, too, in your research was uh, the numbers between Canadians disliking uh, uh, Justin Trudeau and Canadians disliking Donald Trump are closer than we think. Yeah, as much as Canadians dislike Trump, uh, they it dislike Trudeau almost equally as much. So when we rank all four of the, the hmm. political leaders kind of in the conversation right now, uh, Polyev was actually the most liked out of all of them, followed by Biden. And then Trump and Trudeau were actually quite close. Uh, so it really shows that, that you know, no matter how much there is that dislike of Trump, it, it, Trudeau isn't that far off in the minds of many Canadians. So 40 percent, and correct me if I'm wrong on these numbers, I'm just jotted them down here. 40 percent say uh, say that uh, they're close, meaning Trump and and Polyev. What does that mean? Close enough? How How do you decipher that? How do you balance that? Right now, we're just kind of judging the initial perception in terms of, you know, how similar are they? Beyond that, we looked at the ways in which people do view them as being similar or, or different. And in many ways, it's to do with their political views. So whether it is their stance on climate, their stance on social issues, you know, similar worldviews and how they respect democracy. There's a lot of things in which Canadians really do think that there are similarities. The primary difference is really being around how they're viewed as leaders. And that's where they, they Polyev and, and Trump are viewed quite differently. Uh, uh, 
Oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, no. And, and that's, that's a space in which the, that may help Polyev in showing that they are similar, but he is a very different leader than Trump. Uh, 44% pick Polyev over uh, Justin Trudeau, 29% to handle Trump. Why do you think that is? Because we've already seen Justin Trudeau take one swing at it or... Yeah, we have already seen that that first crack at it, and it's known that uh, Trump doesn't necessarily like Trudeau that much, and that they they do kind of butt heads a little bit there. And we saw, you know, in, in 2018 when there was that issue with the G7 summit there. Uh, yeah. So there is that perception that the second kick at the can, if if Trump wins the presidency, um, it, it may have him kind of look at Canada a bit differently if Trudeau is still in charge compared to Polyev. If you were if you were involved in the liberal campaign, how would you view this information? I think right now they they need to try and find a way to get the conservatives off of their their key messaging. And we saw in December when when the conservatives kind of straightened the the messaging a little bit, they lost a little bit of ground. And then they they were able to regain that quite quickly. So we've seen that if the conservatives go off course, it does hurt their perception. And we're also early signs seeing that the ties to Trump are also impacting, as we saw the highest uh, increase in, in negative perceptions of Polyev, in recent uh, polling here. So it does have an impact. So I think the Liberals have a chance to really take a hold of this. It's a matter of it could still come back to hurt them if they don't help Trudeau improve his image as well. But it looks like they're going to continue using the Donald Trump, uh, the Donald Trump um, angle to, to attack uh, Pierre Polyev. Absolutely. And I think that will only strengthen it over the course of the coming months when the U.S. election really ramps up. Eddie Shepard with us, Vice President Insights at Abacus Data. Abacus Data polling shows uh, respondents think Pierre Polyev would uh, handle Donald Trump better than Trudeau uh, in a second go-round. Eddie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You as well. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. A long awaited public inquiry to the extent of which China was interfering in our election has been called. But now Russia and India have also been brought into this. And many are questioning whether uh, this is going to uh, provide any more information than uh, the David Johnston fiasco when he was the special rapporteur. Uh, let's bring in Charles Burton, senior fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier. Institute and is here now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Good to hear from you. So, uh, Charles, your thoughts. I mean, are we going to get any answers here or is this just going to be another show like the David Johnston thing? Well, it's not looking good. I mean, you know, the Justice Hogg was appointed on September 9th. She took up the job on September the 18th. We're now January 29th and they're starting five solid days of hearings on national security confidentiality. So what this is really about is uh, to tell us that over 80% of the documents that they feel are relevant to this matter of foreign interference are, not surprisingly, classified at top secret or above. And therefore, you know, it's not in the public interest for us to know what those documents say directly because it could reveal um, the methods of of CSIS's uh, obtaining information or, um, you know, put people that have provided this information to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service at risk. So we're getting five days starting off on, you know, not exactly the best foot saying, well, uh, you're not going to get all the information you really need to know to know what's at the bottom of this. It does sound, you know, as you say, a little bit familiar to what happened with the Johnston uh, special rapporteur thing where, he told us basically, trust him, nothing to see here. And those documents that were in the Globe and Mail and Global News, uh, you know, he saw other documents that suggested a different story. Well, it's not very satisfactory to us. The next step, apparently, is we wait until all the way to the end of March, and then they will have some public hearings on, you know, the matter at hand, which is, as you say, what sort of... Um, shenanigans of China, Russia, Iran, and so on been up to trying to influence the outcome of our elections in ways that serve their interests. And then she releases her preliminary report on that in May. And then after that, it's sort of cleanup time to talk about how the government could be managing it better. So, I mean, the timelines are extremely short, and the amount of public in this public inquiry seems to be pretty limited. Can we, Charles, go through all of this yet again and end up in the same 
place end up with the same conclusion? Well, I mean, it sure looks like it. And, you know, her final report comes out at the end of the year. And by that time, it's likely we'll be into another election. In any event, anything that the inquiry might turn up would not be implemented uh, before the next government comes into power. That's pretty much for sure. And so you do feel like they're ragging the puck and we're being flim-flammed once again. I mean, basically, people just want to know what did the prime minister know, when did he know it, and why didn't he do anything about it? And that information doesn't seem to be forthcoming so far, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of prospect of seeing it. But let's keep an open mind. It's the only public inquiry we've got. Um, considering there's another election on the horizon, you know, fall of 2025, say, if not sooner, is there not more effort, attention to clear the air for Canadians on this? Well, I mean, absolutely. You know, we need one of those foreign influence registries right away, and we need to have a proper investigation done of foreign interference and the resources given to our our security agencies to crack down on it in a meaningful way. I mean, we don't need to to wait for an inquiry to tell us that those states are involved in a series of malign activities, and that next time it's likely to be a lot worse because advances in artificial intelligence allow those bad actors to to engage in this activity thousands of times, I guess, more efficiently than in the old days when they had to do it case by case. So, you know, once they get all this data and start to to um, work through it and then start to issue targeted misinformation, uh, you know, we're really in a very bad situation. So, I mean, it is a crisis, and I think people are sort of complacent about it, saying, well, it doesn't really matter all that much. But it does if it changes the result of, of an election, even in one riding. You know, we don't we can't allow foreigners to be in, interfering in Canadians' democratic choices. And so, uh, you know, one feels disappointed that, that the government and the opposition are not more together on getting to the bottom of this. But the bottom line is that there's probably information there that the government really doesn't want to see the light of day before the next election or ever. And this process seems to be a bit of a snow job. But, you know, let's uh, let's see how it plays out. It's only day one of hearings on national security confidentiality. Maybe day two, day three, day four, and day five will give me more reassurance that we're actually going to get to the bottom of it. And things that I've been saying to you on this program for quite some time will finally get on the government agenda and something will be done about it. Um, I was talking to a former CSIS analyst earlier on today, and we we're talking about, you, you know, how, how the template, how things, the process of how information intelligence gets from CSIS to uh, the prime minister's office, because that's that was one of the big stinks way back when was uh, one was saying the information was there. And then apparently the prime minister didn't see it. So uh, as he repeated, the info's there. Uh, it's just, is it getting to the prime minister's office and is the prime minister actually reading it? And then once he's reading it, is he doing anything about it? How do we change that? How do we structure that in such a way so we know that the leader is getting this information? Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, there was, you know, ministers that said, oh, I didn't have the classified computer yeah. in my office and therefore I didn't see it. Or senior civil servants that said, well, I was on vacation then and you know, that one flipped through the cracks. I mean, this is all completely unacceptable. And certainly there are allegations that the prime minister was apprised of of information such as the Chinese uh, attempt to intimidate the conservative uh, foreign affairs critic Michael Chong by threatening him and his family and the others, Jenny Kwan and Aaron O'Toole, and didn't see fit to, to respond. And I mean, that's an even more serious uh, degree of of um, concern because this this impacts directly on parliamentary privilege. So, you know, I, I think we just have to demand action here. And I, I don't know to what extent people should be putting up with a process if it appears it's going to be biased too much in the in favor of keeping things secret rather than letting Canadians know what's really going on so that we can be empowered to demand that our government respond in a meaningful way. And those who have suppressed information or who may have been recipients of benefits from a foreign state, you know, ought to be made accountable under law and uh, and dealt with appropriately. 
The long-awaited public inquiry into election interference in the last two elections, federal elections, begins today. Charles Burton with a senior fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Hey, Care Scott. I'm sure we'll be talking more about this. Housing and affordability, number one issues uh, as uh, the House of Commons resumes sitting today. Boy, how things have changed in a short period of time. The Conference Board of Canada has released a report sharing their thoughts on the holistic approach that is needed to solve the housing crisis. And to talk more about all of this, Michael Burke is with us, Vice President of the Conference Board of Canada and here now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, thank you. So, Michael, what stands out for you on this report? Uh, talk about your holistic ar- approach that you feel is needed. So, um, essentially, what it boils down to is this: it's uh, this is a problem that's been a slow boil for a long time. Um, yeah. It's been more than a decade that we've been underbuilding here in Canada, uh, and Ontario is really at the top of the list in terms of the regions where we've seen underbuilding activity take place. Um, and what that means is there's no quick quick fixes. It's going to take um, a variety of different things, both in terms of government policy, in terms of um, construction activity, labor policy, immigration policy, um, and even some innovations in terms of how we build to solve this problem. It's going to take us time. It took us time to get to where we are. It's going to take us time to get back out of the situation we're in right now. How concerned are you, Michael, that because we have not built for such a period of time, it seems like building has been a bad word, especially here in Ontario, that exactly the reasons that we didn't build, we were worried this was going to happen, that all that will happen because this is going to be rushed. So it's a, as I said, it's a long term, it's a long time happening. It's not that yeah. anyone made a decision for us to underbuild. It's it's just a confluence of different things came together. So we had rising costs for uh, for construction activity. We saw uh, increasing controls around what we built, where we built, how we built it. There were big changes in terms of what we were building. Um, if you go back more than a decade ago, the majority of homes we built in Canada were single family. Today, 75% of housing units are condos and apartment buildings. That's a huge change. In a short period of time. Um, you've also got other changes going on. So household sizes are a lot small, smaller today than they used to be. So that means you need more homes today for every uh, every 100,000 people than you did um, 20 years ago. And so all of this adds up to more homes needed today um, than we used to need. And it's been a, a gradual slow burn. And really, it's just kind of come to a, a head in the last last couple of years where we've seen this these big changes in uh, rents and, and home prices. And um, again, long-term solutions needed to, to fix this. We're not going to be able to solve it overnight. Uh, more different types of solutions are needed. We're hearing, uh, for example, a, a story today about uh, Leon's um, uh, I believe it was that wanted to take their headquarters or a portion of that and add housing there. How many are, are we going to see a lot more different ideas like this? And and are we are we open to this sort of thing? Well, it gets back to that innovation component I talked about. Yes, I think we're going to need to see things like this. I mean, there, there's a long list of things we can do. I mean, if you look at, at an individual household level, a lot of talk around things like laneway houses or you know rental units in existing homes. So basically, making better use of the land we have. And when you talk about new developments, um, uh, we're looking at, at greenfield spaces like the, as this Leon's example is a good one. There's a, a, as I understand it, a field there that's been on use for, for a number of mm-hmm. years. How do we better use, make use of that space? So we're seeing um, organizations, companies that have not historically been in the home building business getting into it because they see there's a, an opportunity there. Um, and so uh, and I'd say on, uh, beyond that, too, we're also looking at things like um, prefabricated home buildings. So homes still largely are a built-on-site activities. Um, uh, you know, construction workers build most of the components of a home uh, on the actual work site. So uh, there's lots of potential to to build more components off-site uh, where you can do things in volume and have uh, some more efficiencies in terms of what you're doing and then ship the components to the actual work site uh, and build more modular or component homes. Obviously, Michael, as you mentioned, this cannot be uh, an overnight fix. It's going to take time. But uh, on another aspect of this, Michael, what can we learn from this? What process can we put in place so we don't get stuck here again? Uh, we've seen caps in international students because of housing and, and healthcare crisis and such. Should they be tied together, population and housing? How do we make sure we don't get caught here again? I do think there's a need to um, look at uh, immigration policy in terms of how, uh, basically what's the 
sustainable rate at which we can bring people into the country. We definitely do need immigration. It's a, it's really the only source of labor force growth for the country. If we weren't bringing people in, um, mm-hmm. our country would struggle to grow, frankly. Yeah. Um, but um, that said, uh, we do need a coordinated approach in terms of um, housing needs to be part of the story in terms of do we have enough homes for the for the for the people that we're bringing into the country we also need to look at our building codes as well are we building enough homes are we building the right number of homes are we are we putting into place too many um controls uh, uh policies etc that that limit the ability mm-hmm. to to build um ultimately um it basically, we're talking about um, making it easier to build, uh, reducing the time it takes to get approvals to build, um, and uh, making sure that we have alignment in terms of our our municipal, provincial, federal policies around um, population growth and, and building activity. Michael Burt with us, Vice President of the Conference Board of Canada, commenting on a report sharing their thoughts on the approaches needed to solve the housing crisis. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked at length, and, and this is uh, the reporter who helped break the story way back when of uh, alleged Chinese interference uh, by the communist, Chinese Communist Party in the last two elections. We remember the David Johnston fiasco and what have you, still trying to get to the bottom of all of this, but now the foreign interference inquiry uh, not only involves uh, China, also involves Russia and India, Iran as such. Uh, and again, it has all started today. Let's bring in Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the globe and mail and here now Stephen, thanks for the time hope you're well i'm great thanks glad to be here so, so Stephen, uh obviously this has come after um you know the the very controversial uh, david johnston report and such are, are you confident that we'll get the answers that you're looking for with this inquiry well it's barely started yet so i guess i've got to give them the benefit of the doubt um, but uh, obviously, uh, they have a very tight timeline, and I'm a bit concerned that the timeline is is too short. They basically have 63 days before they have to produce the first report, and that is, uh, and the real hearings don't even begin for another month. So it's not quite sure they're giving themselves enough time. Um, are you concerned that they expand expanded the agenda beyond the Chinese Communist Party to other countries? Well, the uh, what we've written about, we wrote about 17 stories last year based on national security sources and, and secret documents, secret classified documents, and it was uh, about the Chinese government's efforts to uh, to meddle in Canadian society and Canadian politics. And uh, CSIS itself, the uh, you know our spy service, has gone on the record publicly and said China is the foremost aggressor. So. I do think that they are. The evidence suggests they are the major problem, and the other ones pale in comparison. So, I guess uh, you know there is a, another concern that's been voiced by other people, which is that we are we are thinning the focus too much and spreading it over too many issues. Given CSIS has said publicly that China is the uh, is the um, is the foremost aggressor. I mean, you know, uh, pushing a Chinese uh, national who's studying at a university, pushing them to share the research. Uh, interfering in Chinese language media here, what they write and what, what stories they they place, and so on. It, 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 there's a lot of issues which have been raised, and uh, you know, I guess um, you can only focus so much on each one if you keep adding to it. Uh, I remember way back at the beginning of all of this, um, and there was a, there was some sort of disconnect between uh, the prime minister's office and intelligence and such of whether or who was getting the information and when and where and all that sort of. And this was and that was very much a part of this discussion was what the prime minister knew and when he knew it. Are are, are these questions going to be answered? Do you think? Uh, we're hoping so. Um, the. Uh David Johnson had looked into this, and uh, he had, uh, as the former, uh, the special rapporteur that Mr. Trudeau had, had hired uh, in, in lieu of public inquiry, and he had concluded Mr. Trudeau uh, did not fail to to uh, heed warnings. Um, and I guess the question is, does does uh, Justice Hogue, the, the new commissioner, does she have access to more information? Is she going to get a better a better line on this. I'm not sure yet. Again, uh, some of the proof will be in, in what unfolds over the next, uh, you know, 100 days.
What about the ongoing excuses, uh, you know, that we're hearing, Stephen? Can't do this. Too top secret. Nope. Sorry. Can't dig in there. Can't make this public. Sorry. It's not about you or me. It's about security. Well, well, that's one of the uh, challenges with this sort of commission. But we have had these kind of commissions before that have dealt with uh, secure information. The mayor of our inquiry into the man who was who was renditioned to mid- the Middle East against his will. And, of course, the Air, Air India inquiry. We've managed to chew gum and walk at the same time. So there is a question about how much can be revealed to the public. And the commission is trying to figure out a way to relay information, even if it's only uh, paraphrased or also they're suggesting they might try to plead with the government to release information. I uh, remain convinced that uh, there's a lot more information that could be made public and that this is uh, the government is being overly protective of what it, can, what it, what it has inside its, its, uh, its files. Um, obviously, if this government runs through the duration, it'll be the fall of 2025 before there's an election. Will we get enough answers? Will we have enough information, do enough to prevent this from happening again, or at least make Canadians feel a little bit more comfortable about another looming election? Well, they're supposed to issue a report by May 3rd on what happened during the last two elections in terms of foreign interference and, and what kind of impact it had. And then they're supposed to produce a report by September about what we should do to fix it. So, or sorry, by December, my mistake, the second report is what we should do to fix it. I imagine um, that'll be quite close to, to any kind of potential election, and uh, but hopefully the people who run the elections and monitor elections will be watching it and, and taking notes. There have been a number of things that have been suggested to help uh, deal with foreign interference. One of the, the chief examples is a foreign agent registry, where uh, mm. just as they have in the United States and Australia, and then what they're bringing in in the United Kingdom. And of course, that's that's something the government could do now. They don't need to wait for uh, this inquiry to finish. Well, that seems like a no-brainer right off the bat. And we've heard that from various people. Why not at least do that, like other allies have? Well, the government, Prime Minister Trudeau actually promised one in March. If you go on his web, the Prime Minister's website back in March 2023, when this was all unfolding, but uh, it seems to have been bogged down in process right now. So I, I, I don't know uh, what's we don't know what's holding it up, uh, but that is certainly something that he's actually committed to. Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe and Mail. Uh, they have started the Canadian uh, federal uh, inquiry into election interference. Hopefully we can get some answers uh, before the next election and that will uh, make Canadians feel a bit more comfortable. Stephen, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. You know, it seems, and I don't know if we're getting more of this post-pandemic or as a result of the pandemic, or whether we're just hearing more about it because it's getting reported more, but it just seems that we're hearing more and more of just some of the wackiest scams you can believe uh, in order to try to, 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 to rip you blind in some way or somebody. And here's another example of that. Uh, what would you do if all of a sudden you got a uh, ticket, say, from the 407 saying, you owe us this much, and you realize, I it wasn't even there. I, I don't drive on that. I haven't in a while. What happens if someone's using a fake license plate that's based on your own? Apparently, this is a problem that's spreading in Ontario, with some even finding Facebook ads for novelty plates mimicking others' legitimate plates on Canadian roads. You know, it's one thing to create a new plate or copy a plate, but to do it with a vanity plate or a personal plate, that just seems uh, like you're drawing more attention to yourself. Let's bring in Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert with us now. Ari, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Great to be with you. I guess we can't be surprised about this. It seems scams are plentiful and uh, getting more and more original. Well, not only getting more and more original, getting more and more plentiful, as you said, but this is not wacky. When you look at the price of driving on the 407, which I think is out of whack because of the boondoggle that privatized this, when it was built, it was supposed to be the benefit of all taxpayers. It's completely a boondoggle. There's nothing wacky about this, but this ties into something that is happening that I think a lot of Canadians feel, a lot of Hamiltonians feel, an underbelly of crime increasing. And this Hmm. is crime, so make no mistake about it. Just because this isn't a carjacking, if you're the victim of this, you're the one who has the burden of fixing it. You're the one who has the burden of waiting four hours to get through to the 407, Hmm. to get through to parking ticket offices where somebody's racking up parking tickets 
with your license plate in places that you've never parked. And this is reflecting what's going on on our roadways because of all these sorts of forces that it's too politically incorrect to talk about. When you look at who's doing these grifts, when you look at who's perpetrating these scams, when you look at the tow truck industry, when you look at, and I don't think this gets talked about enough, the insurance industry with all the fake uh, bump into's and rear enders where there's so much insurance fraud going on, Scott, nobody talks about it. It's not sexy, but when your listeners go to their car insurance renewal every year and it goes up $115 or $170 a year, that's not just Bidenomics. That's because there's so much scamming and fraud baked into the system and this spoofing or duplicating of license plates. You know, if you were ever allowed in this country to show who's doing it, you know, it would be very eye opening to people to see who are the scammers behind it. But then, you know, you'll never be allowed to see who they are because it's politically incorrect. I find it insidious. And even though it's only a hundred bucks here or two, three hundred bucks here, good luck being somebody whose car or license plate is being scammed onto the 407, you'll lose two or three days out of your life dealing with the 407. And you're not, you haven't even touched on car theft and, and the insurance. No, and, that's and a whole, involved. I can go yeah, much exactly. further on that. All right. So say I get a ticket or a notice from 407 and it's like, I didn't drive there. I wasn't even there at that time. What do I have to do then to avoid paying this, uh, this charge? <laughs> Yeah. So there's a good news glimmer in this, which is, you know, up until you and I talking about it or this being released in a story that obviously caught your attention, you know, you would be calling and again. And I'm not kidding, by the way, Scott, when I say it, like you think calling 911 these days is bad. You think wait, waiting in an ER uh, room is bad. Try calling the 407. Good mm-hmm. luck to you. Bring a lunch. <laughs> the good news, though, is that by people having this be publicized, there's now an understanding amongst the 407, amongst Toronto parking authorities, likely Hamilton, that this is happening. So you're not immediately starting behind the eight ball. The problem, though, is that people will now start getting their huge 407 bills where they're driving from Burlington to Pickering, and they'll say, oh, well, (laughs) to get out of paying their bill, you can imagine they'll say, Oh, it wasn't me. So everything about this city, this province, this country is getting screwed up. And if they really wanted to put a stop to this, and I'm not sure it would, Scott, you know, other than the onus being put on the victim to try and unfix the situation and get the ticket or 407 bill canceled, which you're left to your own devices, the penalties for somebody caught doing this are almost non-existent. Hmm. It's legal to spoof these plates so long as you don't drive on the road. But we live in a province where we welcome criminals by the hundreds, if not thousands, every day, and they don't really care what the rules are. That's why they're criminals. So I feel very, very badly for people that are victimized by this. But also, as I said, Scott, a lot of consumers who right now can't afford groceries, whose insurance costs are going up because of the massive amount of insurance fraud going on in the western part of Toronto. Um, when you do, or when this happens to you, would it be as simple as, cause obviously when they take pictures of your plates on something like the 407, they've got a shot of your car. So is it a case of just, well, here's a shot of my ownership and here's a shot of my car with the plate on it. And it's not the same car. Yeah. Look, there's access to the MTO ministry of transportation records. If they tell you they can't do that, I think they're fully lying. I say that with some levity. So they'll know, like if you have a late model pathfinder, but the 407 picture that has your license plate Hmm. is a Honda Civic that you've never owned, that's never tied to you through any MTO record. This isn't exactly Inspector Clouseau level difficulty. The problem again is, Scott, and look, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer and I charge by the hour. You're lucky you don't get a bill. I say that again with some humor, is that I think people's time is valuable. And when you look at the people that have been victimized here, they're spending hours and hours and hours trying to unfix this versus, I think, a real effort on the part of legislators to try and put a stop to this. Because if we're just talking about it now, Scott, we're just scratching the surface of how much this is happening.
What about the 407? Any responsibility there for them? Because uh, they're, uh, you know, obviously uh, charging fake plates. Or is no, they we're just doing our thing and we're getting robbed here. You know what? My best answer to you, Scott, is as much as I can beat up on the, the 407 parent company for robbing taxpayers and users blind. I don't mm. think this is their doing. I don't think this is their fault. I think we live in a lawless province, a lawless country that continues to excuse criminality big and large, whether it's carjackings, as you just alluded to, and all the car thefts where, you know, the Toronto Police Service put out a, a, a communique last week that basically said, hey, go get a garage, go get motion sensors, yeah. go do this, go do that, rather than maybe there's a concerted effort to try and do something about the rise of crime. But I'll tell you, Scott, as somebody who knows this firsthand, the cops themselves are handcuffed, pun intended. We have a federal government that enables, welcomes, nurtures, and excuses crime on all levels. And I think it's making life very unlivable, unaffordable, and unbearable for a great many people. So no, I don't blame the 407. This is a problem that they should not be facing. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, legal expert, talking about fake license plates and you getting a bill or a charge that you're not involved with. Ari, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to be with you, Scott. He's here now, and he's on after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your spectator. Scott Riley. So uh, today, the first day back for the House of Commons, you know, they had the big meetings, the big retreats there uh, over you know last few days to try to gauge what Canadians want, what they're looking for. And um, and oddly enough, first of all, there's a couple of things. Justin Trudeau wasn't there today on the first day. Can you imagine coming back from your Christmas holidays and you call in and say, hey, you know what, Monday, I'm going to take one more day, or I'm going to do this instead. And I know he was in a meeting, but my whole point was, so they spent the time uh, at these Do retreats. Do we know what the meeting was? Honestly, no, I, I'm not being no, funny, but I just it, know, know it, it seems like in you, Toronto. That's all I know. You, you, you make a change in your meeting. You're the prime minister. You're allowed yeah. to say, I'm busy. It, I, this, I, I, Scott, I honestly, can, you know, the only reason I honestly believe, and I'm not being funny, knowing that he was going to get grilled He's on day one hammered, yeah. about yeah. his vacation, because sure. now maybe if we let the vacation go by a day, uh, there'd be something else. There's no other explanation. You can change if yeah. he was not there. And I they don't were know. ready for him. Was he not there today at all? No, he wasn't there. Okay. He wasn't there. And then we have to listen to all the second stringers, which is bad enough, but all I right. digress. Anyway, so they're, they're floating around the idea of changing the name, changing the name of the carbon tax mm. because we don't understand it. Well, we're idiots, Scott. <laughs> well, every Canadian, every Canadian is a dumb dumb. The, I know that. Look who's the prime minister. But but I digress. It, you know, this just, I mean, how many times have we talked about something like this? You know, Canadians don't understand it, so we've labeled it incorrectly. We're going to change the name, and then maybe they'll no, no, no. accept Scott, it. Scott, let me change something you just said. You said Canadians don't understand it. Canadians don't like it. So yeah, we will change yeah. the name. This yeah. is, this has nothing. You can change the name. You could call it. Justin Trudeau's rainbows and unicorns <laughs> sing along tax, whatever. I don't, it, the reality is that people are struggling and yeah. things like the carbon tax, even though they can argue that you are getting more back than you're spending if you're an average person, which may or may not be true on the check you receive. What that leaves out is every time a truck carries food from a farm to the city, those trucks are paying extra carbon tax. Farmers are paying extra carbon tax. Stores are paying extra carbon tax. You may get a check that is slightly more than what your household is paying on its taxes, but on the, in the grand picture, you're paying far more in carbon tax indirectly than you're getting back. And this is where I believe they're wrong. Canadians are not idiots. Canadians see this. They see what the grocery prices are right now, Scott. They see what gas prices are. They see what it costs to fly and to fill up and all these different things that all are in one way or another affected by carbon tax. They see, you know, other environmental things. They see what's happening with us uh, stopping fuel lines. Now, 
how some people are very much against them, I understand. But the money, the income, when Germany and others came and said, in Japan, we want to buy your gas and the taxes, the revenue that could have helped to help our, control our deficits and our debts. People are not idiots. They may believe in the environment. And I think most people do, but they yeah. also believe in being able to eat and live somewhere and pay their bills. And at a certain point, practicality trumps ideology. And, and, you know, I, I think in, uh, we were talking to Ipsos today and, and, you know, like climate change isn't even in the top 10 of what the priorities are for this session of parliament. And, and the pollster was very, very quick to, to sum up Canadians and, and climate change. It's still very, very important. But the difference is they're not happy with the way the government is managing it. And f so often, and what we've been hearing for years, is if you don't agree with what the Prime Minister is doing, you're a denier. You're a denier. You're a denier. You're a denier. And the Ipsos person even said very clearly today, there, there's not very many people in Canada that are denying that there's climate change. That's not the issue. The issue is the government's inability to manage the situation with this carbon tax and balance it all out. So hopefully, with you know pulling an information like this, uh, we're not, we don't get stuck into that messaging again. Very very much like the messaging of you know changing the name of something. It's not going to change uh, anything. It's not yeah. going to change anything. People get. It. I mean, look, we have um, uh, the environment. Minister, uh, Stephen Gibo going on about how we're all going to be like getting rid of gas powered cars. We're going electric vehicles. How much did we spend on EV battery plants in the last year? And if you look at story after story after story, I'm reading, I've got it on my screen right now. USA Today, Money, The Autopian, Wired, uh, Investors, all these ones, EVs, Nobody is buying them. A budget, the rental car company, I think it was yeah. budget or Hertz, yeah, yeah. just unloaded something yeah. like 50,000 electric vehicles because they can't even rent them. Yeah. And so look, it, people are concerned about the environment. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but much more concerned are they about the ability to live their yeah. everyday life. And if you could, if you could do this in moderation. If you could blend this into their life so that it was not being bludgeoned, I think people would be yeah. far less likely to be taking the position they seem to be. But when you've decided that within the next, what is it, 10 years, we're going to entirely upend your style of life you've always had. We want to get rid of, we want heat pumps instead of gas. We want this instead of that. And people are saying, wait a second, yeah. this is not... I just want to be able to live and pay my bills and make a living. I don't need your ideology. I need practicality. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Uh, the first one comes from Steve, uh, and he says the new name for the carbon tax should be the tax formerly known as carbon tax. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dave writes, hello, Scott. New and improved carbon tax, now gluten-free, improved formula, but still leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Dave, keep right except to pass. Oh.